millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Welcome, everybody, to the Mariner's Mirror podcast, and this part two of a great sea fight special on the Battle of Tsushima of May 1905, one of the most decisive naval battles in history. Fought between the Russian and Japanese fleets, this was the first in which wireless telegraphy played a major part, the first time a modern battleship was sunk by guns, the first and last decisive steel battleship engagement, and the first modern defeat of a great European power by an Asian nation. Part one gave a general background to the battle and to the events which unfolded, so if you need a bit of background, do please check that out. Today, in part two, we are exploring the Russian perspective through the eyes of Captain Vladimir Semenov. But before we hear from Semenov, please note that to go with these special episodes on Tsushima, we have attempted something entirely innovative by animating a contemporary battle plan. The plan we have used was made by William Pakenham, a Royal Naval officer then attached to the Japanese fleet. He witnessed the events firsthand from the decks of the battleship Asahi. We've taken Pakenham's sketch of events, which resemble a plate of spaghetti, so dense are the squiggly lines representing the various movements of the two fleets, and we have redrawn them using the time stamps he gave to the action. So you can see the positions of the two fleets in real time as the events unfolded, you can, in effect, watch the battle plan be drawn as if you were Pakenham sitting at his desk. And you can find this on the Mariner's Mirror podcast YouTube channel. But now to Semenov. Captain Vladimir Semenov was a well-known Russian naval officer who served in several positions throughout the course of the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 to 1905. His presence during the siege of Port Arthur and later during the Baltic fleet's long voyage to Tsushima gave him an unusually broad perspective on the war's progress, and he later wrote several titles relating to these experiences. Indeed, he was one of very few Russian officers who could write as an eyewitness to both major naval battles of the war, the Battle of the Yellow Sea of August 1904, when the Japanese fleet foiled an attempt by the Russian fleet at Port Arthur to join up with the Vladivostok squadron, and the Battle of Tsushima. In some cases, his writings are the sole published accounts of the events at hand. 
At Tsushima, he was present on board the flagship Kunyaz Suvarov during the engagement. Interestingly, he was present in an unofficial capacity, which gave him an unlimited opportunity for observation. And the fact that he was able to make a series of notes at the time until he was too seriously wounded to continue puts an additional stamp of reality onto his already most graphic account. Intriguingly, however, his accounts are littered with inaccuracies. The intelligence of the Japanese that he regularly reports is a fine example of this as it is repeatedly and fantastically inaccurate, and his constant desire to compare and contrast the Russian navy with the Japanese leads to an inevitable focus on certain aspects at the expense of others. Semenov's account of Tsushima in particular has been written for a popular audience. It is fabulously entertaining, but must be handled with care by the historian. So you have been warned, but do enjoy it. It really is fantastic. This is not the entire account, but an abbreviated section of it. It is chapter three, and it offers fascinating insight into daily naval life and the conditions of combat at the start of the 20th century, in an era when the earliest modern steel battleships were beginning to meet each other in battle. The account caused something of a stir when published the following year, and I think perhaps the best way of introducing it is by reading part of a review of it, because it was published in book form the year after the battle. So this review is from the Times Literary Supplement of the 17th of August 1906. Captain Semenov's little volume, which would well repay translation, is a remarkably graphic and luminous account of Admiral Togo's great victory, compiled from notes taken by the author during the engagement. Every word of this little volume bears the impress of reality and enables the reader to form a vivid picture of the various phases of the battle. That was from the Times Literary Supplement of the 17th of August 1906. So, there we go. Here is Vladimir Semenov and his recollections. And they are read brilliantly, may I just say, by Nikita Gukasov, a Russian sixth former studying A-level history, and I'm also assured with a love of naval history, currently at Clifton College in Bristol. So thank you so much, Nikita, for your time and considerable energy expended in becoming Semenov for the afternoon, and also to Daniel Jank and Tim Green, who made this all possible. So without further ado, here is Captain Vladimir Semenov. I kept a diary from January 30th, 1904 to December 19th, 1906, even a little longer, and made daily entries on specially important days, even hourly. Everything I tell of here is based on the data of my diary. In every case at the moment the event occurred, I noted the time by watch. The general feeling at the time was noted somewhat later. My diary also contains conversations and remarks, which I wrote down while still fresh in my mind. Naturally, they stand in a very condensed form, mere headings sometimes. I desire all the more to lay stress on the fact that this is not a narrative written from memory, but a diary. As I know from personal experience how unreliable one's memory is. This is especially the case in action. I won't boast about my memory, though I have been told that in this respect God has not dealt with me in a niggardly spirit. 
but it certainly is remarkable that one can altogether forget a fact which had been noted down in writing. Now the fun will begin, thought I to myself, going up to the after bridge, which seemed to be the most convenient place for carrying out my duty of seeing and noting down everything, as from there I could see both the enemy and our own fleet. Lieutenant Redkin, commanding the after-starboard six-inch turret, was also there. Having dashed up to see what was going on, as the fight was apparently to commence to port, and his turret would not be in action. We stood side by side, exchanging now and again abrupt remarks, not understanding why the Japanese intended crossing to our port side, when our weak spot, the transports and cruisers covering them, were astern, and to starboard of us. Perhaps having commenced the fight while steering on the opposite course and having taken advantage of their superior speed, they calculated on routing us from the stern, in order to fall at the same time on our transports and weak rear. If so, raking fire would present no difficulties. Hello, look, what are they up to? said Retkin, and his voice betrayed both delight and amazement. I looked and looked, and not believing my eyes, could not put down my glasses. The Japanese ships had suddenly commenced to turn in succession to port, reversing their course. If the reader recollects what has been said previously on the subject of turns, he will easily understand that this maneuver made it necessary for all the enemy ships to pass in succession over the point on which the leading ship had turned. This point was, so to speak, stationary, on the water, making it easy for us to range and aim. Besides, even with a speed of 15 knots, the maneuver must take about 15 minutes to complete, and all this time the vessels, which had already turned, would mask the fire of those which were still coming up. How rash, said Retkin, who could not keep quiet. Why, in the middle we'll be able to roll up the leading ships. Please God, we may, thought I. It was plain to me that Togo, seeing something which he had not expected, had suddenly changed his mind. The maneuver was undoubtedly risky, but on the other hand, if he found it necessary to steer on the opposite course, there was no other way of doing it. He might have ordered the fleet to turn together, but this would have made the cruiser Iwate the leading ship in action, which he evidently did not wish. Togo accordingly decided to turn in succession, in order that he would lead the fleet in person, and not leave success at the commencement of the action to depend upon the presence of mind and enterprise of the junior flag officer. The Iwate flew rare Admiral Simamura's flag. My heart beat furiously, as it had never done before, during the six months at Port Arthur, if we succeeded, God grant it, even though we didn't sink one of them if we could only put one out of action, the first success... Was it possible? Meanwhile, Rasjesmski hastened to avail himself of this favorable opportunity. At 1.49 p.m., when the maneuver had been performed by the Mikasa and Shikishima, two only out of the twelve, the Suvorov fired the first shot at the range of 6,400 yards, and the guns of the whole fleet thundered forth. I watched closely through my glasses. The shots which went over and those which fell short were all close, but the most interesting, in other words, the hits, as in the fight of 10th of August, could not be seen. Our shells on bursting emitted scarcely any smoke, 
and the fuses were adjusted to burst inside after penetrating the target. A hit would only be detected when something fell. And nothing fell! In a couple of minutes, when Fuji and Asai turned also and were following the first ships, the enemy began to reply. The first shells flew over us. At this range, some of the long ones turned a complete somersault, and could clearly be seen with the naked eye curving like so many sticks thrown in the air. They flew over us, making a sort of wail, different to the ordinary roar. Are those the portmanteaus? I asked Dretkin, smiling. Yes, those are they. But what struck me most was that these portmanteaus, curving awkwardly head over heels through the air and falling anyhow on the water, exploded the moment they touched its surface. This had never happened before. After them came others short of us, nearer and nearer. Splinters whistled through the air, jingled against the side and superstructure. Then, quite close and abreast the foremost funnel, rose a gigantic pillar of smoke, water and flame. I saw stretchers being carried along the forebridge and I leaned over the rail. Prince Seretele, shouted Redkin from below in reply to my silent question as he went towards his turret. The next shell struck the side by the center six-inch turret and there was a tremendous noise behind and below me on the port quarter. Smoke and tongues of fire leapt out of the officer's gangway. A shell having fallen into the captain's cabin and having penetrated the deck had burst in the officer's quarters, setting them on fire. And here I was able to observe, and not for the first time, the stupor which seems to come over men who have never been in action before, when the first shells begin to fall. A stupor which turns easily and instantaneously at the most insignificant external shock into either uncontrollable panic which cannot be allayed or into unusually high spirits, depending on the man's character. The men at the fire mains and hoses stood as if mesmerized, gazing at the smoke and flames, not understanding apparently what was happening. I went down to them from the bridge, and with the most commonplace words, such as wake up, turn the water on, got them to pull themselves together and bravely to fight the fire. I was taking out my watch and pocketbook to make a note of the first fire when something suddenly struck me in the waist and something large and soft, though heavy, hit me in the back, lifting me up and hurling me onto the deck. When I again got up, my notebook and watch were in my hands as before. My watch was going, but the second hand was slightly bent, and the glass had disappeared. Stupefied by the blow, and not myself, I began carefully to hunt for it on the deck and found it unbroken. Picking it up, I fitted it into my watch and only then realizing that it had been occupied with something of no importance, I looked around. I'd probably been unconscious for some time, as the fire had been extinguished and save for two or three dead bodies on which water was pouring from the torn hoses, no one was to be seen. Whatever had struck me had come from the direction of the deckhouse. Aft, which was hidden from me by a mantlet of hammocks. I looked in the direction where the flag officers, with a party of poop signalmen, should have been. The shell had passed through the deckhouse, bursting inside. Of the ten or twelve signalmen, some seemed to be standing by the starboard six-inch turret, others seemed to be lying in huddled the group. Inside was a pile of something. On the top lay an officer's telescope. Is this all that is left? I wondered, but I was wrong. 
and by some miracle Novosiltsev and Kazakevich were only wounded and helped by Maximov had gone to the dressing station while I was lying on the deck occupied with mending my watch. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, a scene that you are accustomed to, like the 10th of August, said the irrepressible Redkin, peeping out of his turret. Just the same, I replied in a confident tone. But it was hardly so. Indeed, it would have been more correct to say, not in the least like. On the 10th of August, in a fight lasting some hours, the Tsarevich was struck by only 19 large shells, and I, in all seriousness, had intended in the present engagement to note the times and places where we were hit, as well as the damage done. But how could I make detailed notes when it seemed impossible even to count the number of projectiles striking us? I had not only never witnessed such a fire before, but had never imagined anything like it. Shells seemed to be pouring upon us incessantly, one after another. After six months with the Port Arthur squadron, I had grown indifferent to most things. Shimos and Melanites were to a certain extent all acquaintances, but this was something new. It seemed if these were mines, not shells, which were striking the ship's side and falling on the deck. They burst as soon as they touched anything, the moment they encountered the least impediment in their flight. Handrails, funnel guys, topping lifts of the boats, derricks, were quite sufficient to cause a thoroughly efficient burst. The steel plates and superstructure on the upper deck were torn to pieces and the splinters caused many casualties. Iron ladders were crumpled up into rings and guns were literally hurled from their mountings. Such havoc would never be caused by a simple impact of a shell, still less by that of its splinters. It could only be caused by the force of the explosion. The Japanese had apparently succeeded in realizing what the Americans had endeavored to attain in inventing their Vesuvium. In addition to this, there was the unusual high temperature and liquid flame of the explosion, which seemed to spread over everything. 
I actually watched the steel plate catch fire from a burst. Of course, the steel did not burn, but the paint on it did. Such almost non-combustible materials as hammocks and rows of boxes drenched with water flared up in a moment. At times it was impossible to see anything with glasses, owing to everything being so distorted with the quivering heated air. No, it was different to the 10th of August. I hurriedly went to the Admiral in the Cunning Tower. Why? At the time I did not attempt to think, but now feel sure that I merely wish to see him, and by seeing him to confirm my impressions. Running along the forebridge I almost fell, slipping in a pool of blood. The chief signalman Kandaorov had just been killed there. I went into the conning tower and found the admiral and captain both bending down, looking out through the chink between the armor and the roof. Sir, said the captain, energetically gesticulating as was his wont, we must shorten the distance, they're all being killed, they're on fire. Sir, said the captain, energetically gesticulating as was his wont, we must shorten the distance, they're all being killed, they're on fire. Wait a bit. Aren't we all being killed also? replied the admiral. Close to the wheel, and on either side of it, lay two bodies in officers' tunics, face downwards. Face downwards. The officer at the wheel, and Bersenev, was shouted in my ear by a sub-lieutenant Shishkin, whose arm I had touched, pointing to the bodies. Bersenev first, in the head, quite dead. The rangefinder was worked. Vladimirsky shouted his orders in a clear voice, and the electricians quickly turned the handles of the indicator, transmitting the range to the turrets and light gun batteries. We're all right, thought I to myself going out of the conning tower, but the next moment the thought flashed across me. They can't see what's going on on board. Leaving the tower, I looked out intently on all sides of the forebridge. Were not my recent thoughts which I had not dared to put into words realized? No, the enemy had finished turning, his twelve ships were in perfect order at close intervals, seeming parallel to us but gradually forging ahead. No disorder was noticeable. It seemed to me that with my Zeiss glasses the distance was little more than 4,000 yards. I could even distinguish the mantlets of hammocks on the bridges and groups of men. But with us, I looked around, what havoc, burning bridges, smoldering debris on the decks, piles of dead bodies signaling and judging distance stations, gun directing positions, all were destroyed, and astern of us, the Alexander and Borodino were also enveloped in smoke. No, it was very different to the 10th of August. The enemy, steaming ahead, commenced quickly to incline to starboard, endeavoring to cross our T. We also bore to starboard, and again we had him almost on our beam. It was now 2.15 p.m. A map came up to report what had taken place in the after 12-inch turret. I went to look. Part of the shield over the port gun had been torn off and bent upwards, but the turret was still turning and keeping up a hot fire. The officer commanding the fire parties had had both his legs blown off and was carried below. Men fell faster and faster. Reinforcements were required everywhere to replace casualties. Even at the turrets into which splinters could only penetrate through the narrow gun ports. The dead were, of course, left to lie where they had fallen, but yet there were not enough men to look after the wounded. There are no spare men on board a warship, and a reserve does not exist. 
Each man is detailed for some particular duty and told of his post in action. The only source which we could tap was the crews of the 47mm and machine guns, who from the commencement of the fight had been ordered to remain below the armor deck so as not to be unnecessarily exposed. Having nothing to do now, as all their guns which were in exposed positions on the bridges had been utterly destroyed, we made use of them, but they were a mere drop in the ocean. As for the fires, even if you had had the men, we were without the means with which to fight them. Over and over again, the hoses in use were changed for new ones, but these also were soon torn to ribbons, and the supply became exhausted. Without hoses, how could we pump water onto the bridges and spar deck where the flames raged? On the spar deck in particular, where eleven wooden boats were piled up, the fire was taking a firm hold. Up till now, the store of wood had only caught fire in places as the water which had been poured into the boats prior to the commencement of the action was still in them, though it was fast trickling out of the numerous cracks momentarily being made by the splinters. We of course did everything possible, tried to plug the holes and brought up water in buckets. I am not certain if the scuppers had been closed on purpose or had merely become blocked but practically none of the water we used for the fire ran overboard, and it lay instead on the upper deck. This was fortunate, as in the first place the deck itself did not catch fire, and in the second, we threw into it the smoldering debris falling from above, merely separating the burning pieces and turning them over. Seeing Sub-Lieutenant Jemchinsky standing by the ladder of the forebridge, with a party of forecastle signalmen near the starboard forward 6-inch turret, I went up to him. Golovnin, another sub-lieutenant, was also in charge of the turret, gave us some cold tea to drink, which he had stored in bottles. It seems a trifle, but it cheered us up. Jemchinsky told me that the first shell striking the ship had fallen right into the temporary dressing station, rigged up by the doctor in what seemed the most sheltered spot on the upper battery, between the center six-inch turrets by the ship's icon. He said that it had caused a number of casualties, that the doctor somehow escaped, but the ship's chaplain had been dangerously wounded. I went there to have a look at the place. The ship's icon, or more probably speaking, icons, as there are several of them, all farewell gifts to the ship were untouched. The glass of the big icon case had not even been broken, and in front of it, on hanging candlesticks, candles were peacefully burning. There wasn't a soul to be seen. Between the wrecked tables, stools, broken bottles and different hospital appliances were some dead bodies, at the mass of something which with difficulty I guessed to be the remains of what had once been men. I had not had time properly to take in the scene of destruction when Jemchinsky came down the ladder supporting Flag Lieutenant Sverbiev, who could scarcely stand. He was gasping for breath and asked for water. Ladling some out of the bucket into a mess kettle, I gave him some. As he was unable to use his arms, we had to help him. He drank greedily, jerking out a few words. It's a trifle. Tell the flag captain I'll come immediately. I'm suffocated with his cursed gases. I'll get my breath in a minute. He inhaled the air with a great effort through his blue lips, and something seemed to rattle in his throat and chest, though not, of course, the poisonous gases. On the right side of his back, his coat was torn in a great rent, and his wound was bleeding badly. 
Demchinsky told off a couple of men to take him down to the hospital, and we again went on deck. I crossed over to the port side, between the forward 12-inch and 6-inch turrets, to have a look at the enemy's fleet. It was all there, just the same, no fires, no healing over, no falling bridges, as if it had been a drill instead of fighting. And as if our guns, which had been thundering incessantly for the last half an hour, had been firing, not shells, but the devil alone knows what. Feeling almost in despair, I put down my glasses and went aft. The last of the halyards are burned, said Demchinsky to me. I think I shall take my men somewhere under cover. Of course, I fully agreed. What was the use of the signalmen remaining under fire when nothing was left for them to signal with? It was now 2.20 p.m. Making my way aft through the debris, I met Redskin hurrying to the forecastle. We can't fire from the port quarter, he said excitedly. Everything is on fire there, and the men are suffocated with heat and smoke. Well, come on, let's get some of them to put the fire out. I'll do that, but you report to the admiral. Perhaps he will give us some orders. What orders can he give? He may alter the course. I don't know. What? Leave the line? Is it likely? Well, anyway, you tell him. In order to quiet him, I promised to report at once, and we separated, going our ways. As I anticipated, the admiral only shrugged his shoulders on hearing my report and said, They must put the fire out. No help can be sent from here. Instead of two dead bodies, five or six were now lying in the conning tower. The man at the wheel having been incapacitated, Vladimirsky had taken his place. His face was covered with blood, but his moustache was smartly twisted upwards, and he wore the same self-confident look as he had in the wardroom when discussing the future of gunnery. Leaving the tower, I intended going to Rietzkin to tell him the admiral's reply and to assist in extinguishing the fire, but instead I remained on the bridge looking at the Japanese fleet. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. Please do listen to the other editions of the Great Sea Fight series, not just parts one and part two two and part three of the Tsushima episodes, but also uh, the first one we ever released on the Battle of the River Plate of December 1939. It was the first naval battle of the Second World War and it led to the scuttling of the German pocket battleship, the Admiral Graf Spee. Or the second one, the Battle of Cape St Vincent of 1797, in which Horatio Nelson first shot to fame by boarding not one but two of the largest enemy ships, one from the other, in what he described as his patent bridge for boarding first rates. They're great fun and they really introduce some fascinating scholarship. Do please follow the Society for Nautical Research on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook. The Mariner's Mirror podcast has its own YouTube channel and Instagram page. But best of all, please check out the website snr.org.uk. And if you are not a member, please, please join the Society because your annual subscription fee will go towards publishing the most important maritime history and towards preserving our maritime past.